again, as I've told you, I'm studying this so differently than I have in the past, not trying to focus so largely on the symbolism, but actually what the revelation means to us right now. What does God want us to know about where we are from this revelation? So I, as I left the seven churches, which were very easy to understand and consider, just so amazing to look at the scripture and, and consider it again from a different perspective. For two chapters, we're, we get a glimpse into the throne room of God, and especially in chapter four. Chapter four is one that uh, kind of caught me off guard because in the first vision, we see Jesus, we see Christ, the son of man, and he's revealed standing in the middle of these seven churches. I kept wrestling with the typical teaching that each of these churches represents a stage in the development of the church, with the church at Laodicea best picturing what's happening in the church today. But I kept reminding myself, the instruction to John was to make sure that every church got every letter. But what I realized in, as I flipped the page leaving this vision was that each of those churches represents seven aspects of one church, not one aspect per church. That within a church's life, these are going to occur. You're going to go through those seasons of obedience and you're also going to face the times when it shifts and all of a sudden you're dealing with, seems like nothing, like in Laodicea, you're dealing with the opinions of men rather than the revelation of God. So you'll find all seven churches and the messages to all seven churches in the life of one church. And I would venture to say, if we, if we would go back and study and look just a little bit, that we would find each one of those teachings within this church. As we flip the page into chapter four, I told you from the beginning, I'm reading a book by Watchman Nee, and it's, that's partially the guide for this study. He's the one that really inspired me to read this differently. Revelation 4.1 begins like this. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as if it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. I believe that God invited, in this revelation, for John to step into the throne room and take this look and say, from here, I'm going to show you the things to come. But immediately what John begins to describe is not the things yet to come. He begins to describe the throne room that he was invited to. I believe that this message in Revelation 4, beginning with verse 1, especially with verse 2, is what the throne room looks like today and every day. I don't think this is yet to come. I think he's giving us a glimpse into what the throne room of God looks like right now. Now, 5 is a little bit different, but Revelation 4 I think we need to approach it to understand what the revelation for, for us right now is, is if we consider this as just stuff in the future, then we will discount what he wants us to see. But the first description is what he saw when he entered the throne room. And I think that that's going to be particularly relevant because that throne room becomes the source of everything here. We're tied critically. What's happening in that throne room right now? If we dismiss it, we're going to miss something. Because that throne room is designed for us to take a glimpse into so that we'll understand who's on that throne. Behold, there was a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne 
And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings upon him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worshiping him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So we get a glimpse in chapter four into the throne room. And again, I teach and believe that is the throne room today, not some future picture, but that's what the throne room looks like right now. One of the most amazing things to me is that I shared this last week. This is one of those relevant truths that the modern Christian church cares very, very little about the sovereignty of God. And we talked about the sovereign, that is that he is king. The church doesn't care much about that anymore. We don't talk much about God being that sovereign because, and I'll just share this again, it's because we have allowed Jesus to become this add-on savior. We have our lives, we have our plans, we have our occupations, we have our families, we have our homes, and what we really need of God is for him to come and give us advice, for him to come give us an encouragement, for him to come give us guidance when we need it, peace when we're struggling. We're good most of the time. We just need him to come kind of help us and fill in the blanks. And I will tell you, he will never, ever take you on those terms. He will not become an add-on savior. And if you try, then I can assure you that what you're thinking is going to occur will not occur. He makes it clear over and over and over within the scripture, I'm crucified with Christ. What is within that scripture? What is Paul saying? I am crucified with Christ. What does that mean? I had to what? I had to die. I was crucified. Yet not I, I, I live crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You can still see me yet not I. It's the real truth. Christ lives in me. You see, the message of the cross, the message of Jesus Christ is always, as Shorty said it a couple of weeks ago, it's always a replacement. We have to die. Why would that be necessary? Remember these things, connect these dots. He is sovereign. What in the world am I going to bring to him that I could produce that will satisfy his standards? Zero. What's the chances that I could produce something, produce some goodness, produce some kindness, Produce some joy, some happiness, some love, some forgiveness that, that came within me that I could hold up to him and say, would you accept it? And the answer will absolutely be no, I won't accept it because it can't meet the standard that he requires. 
But in our current Christian world, we have taught so long that God will take you just like you are. No, he'll love you just like you are. He will not take you the way that you are. So hard words. Why won't he take you? Because his standard of righteousness that will allow you to enter into his presence has to be a righteousness that is true righteousness and not the stuff we can produce out of our own life. So until I'm willing for all of my effort to die, all of my attempts to die, so that I realize that I can't meet that standard, it's only at that point that I will look across the aisle and see somebody sitting over here whose righteousness will meet that standard. If I have any sense about me at all, if I recognize that my righteousness cannot meet the standard of the righteousness of God, but I see somebody over here who has that righteousness, what will be the absolute best thing that I could do? I have to go over here to this person whose righteousness will meet that standard, allow that person to come live in me, and that righteousness now is offered to God, and he'll accept it. He'll accept the righteousness of his own son so that when his righteousness comes to live in us, I can offer to God the righteousness of his son, and he'll take it. That will never happen until we die so that he can live in us. He will not be an add-on savior unless a seed is placed in the ground and dies. Think about those scriptures. Think about that teaching. Because until we return and absolutely recognize what's being described here, we're talking about these people who are bowing down to Jesus, these beings that are bowing down to Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, recognizing his sovereignty and saying, holy, 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 worthy are you to be worshiped who was and is and is to come because they recognize who he is. Exactly what am I going to muster from within myself that I'm going to bring before that king and, and meet that kingly standard when that's going on in the throne room? We have to return to recognizing the sovereignty of God. He is our king. By him being sovereign, we understand our position and our relationship to him. And until we switch that from him being our helper to him being our savior, then we'll never understand the sovereignty of God. And I love the picture. As John describes it, he says, immediately I was in the spirit. One of the reasons why the Christian church is so susceptible to strange philosophies as we hear them described that will occur in the last days is because we actually know so little truth. We don't know very much truth. I shared it with you last Wednesday, a little bit on Sunday morning, that unless we're willing and recognize the necessity of understanding what John was talking about when he says, immediately I was in the spirit. If we don't understand that as believers, what that means to enter into the spirit, to have a relationship with God that is spirit to spirit, then we're going to see a lot of the effects of God and never understand the cause of God. What are the chances that we could evaluate an effect of God and get it right? We're gonna miss it in some margin of error all the time. We can see what God does. And most of the time we're left kind of stunned and saying, God, why would you do that? Until you can enter into the spirit, you cannot understand the cause of God. Do you think he wants us to understand the cause or just to take things in blind faith? If I look at first Corinthians chapter two, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men. Those things that God has planned for us. What's the next word in verse 10? But by his spirit, we can know those things he has planned for us. 
By all means, he wants us by his spirit to know the cause of God, the purposes of God. He wants us to have an understanding bigger than trying to interpret only the outward expression of God that we generally get messed up anyway. God, why would you let that happen? I had a text message from a lady in Fort Worth today that had listened to a sermon on Naaman, but she said she had listened to it twice had gone through a divorce recently, and she said that divorce had left her in such an awful place. But she said, I've come to recognize that even in the awfulness of this divorce, there was not of God and from God. He did not intend this. She said, there's some things about this I would not have learned had this not occurred. Now, you can look at the purposes of God and totally misunderstand. But if you're willing, if you can, you can recognize powerfully that the cause of some of these things is so different than what we can interpret only by looking at the effect. We miss it. But John said, immediately I entered into the spirit. That should not be a strange term to the modern Christian church. I taught a while back from the book, Breaking the Outer Man by Watchman Nee. And one of the things he says in chapter one, verse one, is that any Christian at any time should be able to access his spirit in relationship to the spirit of God and be able to minister to someone from that spirit. That should not be the exception. That should be the everyday rule for you and I, that we should be able in the spirit, in relationship to the spirit of God, be able to speak in truth, give counsel, give encouragement, give guidance from that spirit at any time. This shouldn't be the random stuff. This should be reality of who we are. So if we don't go beyond our knowledge, what we can process, we'll see the effect and never know the cause. And Christianity for way too long has misunderstood the effect because they couldn't understand exactly what they saw. So he was in the spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit to take us beyond the natural realm so that we can see what only the spirit can show us. And we shouldn't be startled by it. Okay, here's kind of where we pick up this week. When John said he entered into the spirit and he said, behold, a throne. Now we know in context what he's talking about. But at his first glimpse, he said, behold, a throne. If I didn't know anything else, if I had no other clues and no other pictures and no other understanding, but I had this, behold, a throne, what should that do for us? I mean, we're having a conversation right now about what it's like to have a relationship with the king. I don't know what that does in you. I don't know if it stirs anything in you or not. But what if John said, behold, an office, behold, a desk and a chair. What should fire up in us when he says, behold, a throne? I mean, immediately you and I as believers ought to connect with the reality that there's not ever going to be a day. There will never be a moment. There will never be a situation. There will never be an opportunity. There will never be a tragedy that is bigger than the person sitting on that throne. And that person sitting on that throne is my sovereign. He is the one who brought redemption to me, salvation to me. He's the one that loves me. He's the one that's promised he will never leave me or forsake me. And he sits on a throne that should immediately bring us great peace and great comfort and great wisdom and great understanding that the person that we're worshiping sits on a throne. We can reduce it to nothing, or we can make this the beginning of an understanding of of who he really truly made us to be. We find here this God 
who is in charge. Jesus saw that throne when he was before Pilate. John 19, 11, when he says, you would have no authority over me. What's Jesus know when he's talking to Pilate, when he says, you would have no authority over me. And then he, the next word is unless. What is he knowing? That even Pilate in this moment, who's going to condemn him, the one who is going to order his death, Jesus is saying, I know that there is no power over me because you would not have that power unless it was your power originated in that same throne room. That's what he says. This is the verse. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. He's saying to Pilate, you may think you have power. You may think you have authority and you think you may be able to command what you command. But I'll tell you right now, the only reason that you have that power to say anything to me and decree anything that would affect me is because that power was given to you from that same throne room. Jesus knew it. We have to find it out. I'd like to be able to answer the way Jesus did when I'm in that moment. I'd like for him to, I'd like to be able to tell someone the only way that you can affect me is because that power was given to you from, from the throne room of God and to actually live that way. In verse three, a lot of description about the glory and about what we get to see, this indescribable surroundings that were around the one that was sitting on the throne. And it says, and around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Verse four, this is a tricky one and much differing opinions about what's really going on here. Who are these 24 elders? I can tell you that the normal thought is because the simple math is that there are 12 disciples and there were 12 tribes of Israel. So the, the simple math to create 24 is probably the apostles and it's probably the 12 sons of Israel. That makes up the 24. If you didn't have those simple pictures of 12 plus 12, the conclusions would have to be drawn very differently. I'm going to read most of this so I can get through it quickly. First Chronicles 24 gives us the key to true understanding of who this really is. Under David, the Levitical priesthood was divided into 24 courses under the leadership of 24 elders. They were chosen by families according to Aaron's 24 grandsons. Each course was named for one of them, and the male descendants of each grandson constituted one of the 24 courses throughout the generations. The priesthood was divided into 24 orders for an express purpose. This was their order for coming on duty to serve in the house of the Lord. According to the procedure ordered for them by their forefather Aaron, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. So when you recognize what's happening, those 24 who were elders and were responsible for these 24 courses would make a decision because those who could enter in and actually serve God because you couldn't bring the mass in of all those people, those 24 represented the people, all those generations coming before the presence of God. So it represented the believers. Basically, let me read a little bit more. Since the whole priesthood could not serve in the temple at the same time, they were divided into those courses and were assigned to work in shifts from one Sabbath to the next Sabbath. All the members belonging to the course had to appear in the temple and the work was divided among them. The point is that it took all 24 courses to make up the entire priesthood of God. The 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones round about the throne of God represent the complete priesthood of God. Who are we? 
Again, teaching that is long gone out of the Christian church, but when I was growing up here was a very common teaching. Who are we? According to 1 Peter chapter 2, we are the priesthood of the believers. We are priests according to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are a nation of priests. Every one of us having the responsibility of living as a priest. Every one of us from childhood should have been taught that. Why did priests wear linen? When they went into worship, why did they wear linen? We're going to see it here in just a second in these very scriptures. Because when they went into the presence of God, they couldn't sweat. What was sweat a sign of? Work. Because everything that they were offering to God had to have been given from God to them first. So that there was no work being performed in the service of God. There could be no human effort being offered back to God as as part of the worship. Isn't that amazing? No human effort. We talked about this on Sunday morning in Bible study. When Adam and Eve first sinned and they sewed the fig leaves together, why wasn't God pleased with their covering? What word in that bothered him? It was effort. They sewed. They had to work. So they were working trying to provide a covering for their sin, and God was not pleased with what they did. So what did he do? He killed an animal. There had to be a blood sacrifice. There had to be blood so that it could provide an accurate and suitable covering for their sin. Telling us already from that animal that was killed that Jesus would someday die for our sins. It had to be the shedding of blood. He won't take us based on our effort. So who do you think then these 24 elders sitting on these 24 thrones really are? It's us already in the presence of God. How do we know this to be true? I'm not making this up. How do we know this to be true? We'll do a little Bible study right quick, a little Bible drill. If you want to be part of this contest, go to Ephesians 2 and read me the scripture that tells this, that we know this is true. Ephesians chapter 2, we find a scripture there that tells us that this is already true. He has raised past tense. That's already occurred. He has already raised us up to sit in those heavenly places. So it shouldn't surprise us that we are already designed to be present in the throne room of God. Now we get really hung up, as we all do, on where this throne room is. What if the throne room is in your heart? What if the throne room is not in some far off place? What if in in four dimensions or five dimensions and things we cannot comprehend, what if the throne room of God passes right through where we exist, where we're sitting right here today? We don't know these things. I can trust by faith, though, that when he says that the elders are there and the elders represent the priesthood, we are the priesthood of the believers, which puts us in that throne room. But that still, for me, is not the most shocking part. Let's read just a little bit further. Back to Revelation 4. These are the elders, and what is their position before Jesus? What are they doing? They're sitting. Does that seem strange? What position do you think we would be? On our faces, bowing would seem more appropriate. Why are they sitting? No effort. In the throne room of God, the priesthood of the believers have to recognize that there will never be any effort offered to God. I want to ask shocking. In the Christian church today that is wrapped up on performance, do more God's pleased. The more you do, the happier God gets. That's the typical Christian teaching today. The more you do, the happier God gets with you. And I will tell you, it is absolutely untrue. God is not happier the more you do. As a matter of fact, he says it several times in the scripture, you have to stop striving. You cannot strive and please God. 
What pleases God is when you offer back to him that which he gave you. That makes sense. Let's logically process that for just a second. If God gave me this, this is from God. And let's just pretend for a second I have another glass over here, another cup over here that is 100% me. And when you look at the two, this looks better. This is a fine china over here. This is a plastic cup. Wouldn't God be happier with me if I presented to him this which I had earned, this which I had worked for, this which looks better than this? Wouldn't he be pleased with me to offer something back to him that looked better than this? Absolutely not, because God will never be pleased if you offer anything back to him except that which he gave you. Why? Because nothing I have can meet that standard. Everything he's going to ask of you, he must give to you first. Because the only way that you can meet his standard is offer back to him that which he's given to you. And I want to tell you, that ought to be such relief to you and I. Because what does that mean automatically? He will never ask anything of me that he hasn't already given me. So when am I ever going to not be able to give something back to him? Never. Everything he's ever going to ask, he's already given me so that I can give it freely back. This will change your concept of God if you'll let it. This will radically shift you and me from the teaching that God is pleased with me or displeased with me based on what I do not do. He's not keeping score. He doesn't have that book where he's recording these things about you. If you wonder about this, go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Look at that story again. When God told King Saul, I want you to go against King Agag and his people, and I want you to destroy everything. I don't want there to be an animal left. I don't want anything of King Agag's kingdom. I want anything left alive. So when Samuel comes to see Saul after the battle's over and he walks up and he's coming up to Saul, and he says, what is that I'm hearing? Where'd you get those cattle? Where'd you get those sheep? And King Saul says, you know, we had an idea. Really, the people had an idea. I didn't, I didn't tell them it was wrong. What they thought we would do is we would take the, the best of King Agag's kingdom, pick out the best, and we would bring it back to you and offer it to you as a sacrifice. How does God feel about our self-effort? He hates it. So what happens when we try to offer it back to him in praise? What happened here? What did Samuel do? Especially when he found out they also, one of the things that they saved was King Agag himself. What did he do? He, he took Saul's sword and cut the king up into pieces. You want to know how God feels about obedience and about offering back to him those things that are not of him or from him or by him? Pretty strong response. He will not take it. He wants given back to him. So if the 24 elders do represent the priesthood, it's quite strange that they would be seated in the presence of God. To be seated in God's presence means you're not running around doing your good works to obtain righteousness. The elders were not striving to obtain righteousness. They were resting in the reality that they had obtained it where? In Christ, not by their works, but by the grace of God. Seems strange to be sitting in the presence of God, not bowing, not just prostrate on the floor, bowing to him. But when we recognize that the righteousness was given to us by him, by our faith in him, well, I can offer it back to him and it be pleasing to him. I know this is meat. You're going to have to chew on it. It may not go down easy. The entire priesthood is resting from its own works. This is the church that has existed throughout the ages. The church that entered into the rest of God. If you want to read more about that, Hebrews 4 talks about entering into that rest. And there's that Ephesians 2, 6. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Notice again, it's already happened. The elders were clothed in white garments. What does that picture? White throughout the book of Revelation consistently speaks of righteousness. Wherever there's a description of Christ's clothing, it is always white. Here the entire royal priesthood is clothed in the righteousness of Christ through the covenant mercy of God. How are we dressed when God looks at us? If we're saved, you're dressed in the righteousness of his son. I spoke on this on Sunday night, hard concept. I hope you don't choke on this meat because I'm giving it to you in pretty big bites when he talks about that we are complete in him. Wrestle that through your head about twice and see what you come up with. What does it mean if you're complete? You're not lacking anything. That means I don't need any more instruction. I don't need any more provision. I'm not lacking anything. It's like, wait a minute, Randy, that can't be right because I feel like I'm lacking everything. I don't feel like I have enough faith. I don't feel like I have enough joy. I don't feel like I have enough peace. I'm lacking in everything. And God's saying, you're not lacking in anything because it has already been given. Who's telling you that you're lacking? Who would love to speak that in your ear? Satan, absolutely. You're not enough. And God's saying, you are complete in him. Going a little bit further. Gold, the crown symbolizes God's divine nature. Crowns are the symbol of victory. So this is a picture of, of overcomers because they, they were wearing the golden crowns. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. This is the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God speaks of the fullness of the spirit of God. He is complete. That's what the number seven means. There was a sea of glass also before the throne. In the scriptures, the sea represents a multitude of people. And since it was crystal clear, like it was flat, what would you speak of water that looked like that? What happens when you run a boat through the water? What does it do? It disturbs it. What happens when that wakes are gone and it gets level again? It's peace. There's nothing troubling it. The environment of the throne room is peace. The four living creatures are brought into view in this throne room as well. It says, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes front and back. It's unfortunate that the King James Version has translated the, the Greek word zoon, which is Z-O-O-N, as beast instead of living creatures, because what it should say that there were four living creatures. Beast has a negative connotation. And when the scripture uses the word beast, it doesn't use that Greek word. The Greek word for beast is T-H-E-R-I-O-N. If it's really going to speak of a beast, it has an entirely different word. So the English has, has interpreted it beast, but it's actually just living creatures. We find the lamb standing with the four living creatures and the elders in the midst of the throne. And when we look at these creatures, it says one was like a lion. Chapter 5, verse 5 tells us that Christ is identified as that lion. And it speaks of the nature of the lion, speaks of the nature of who Christ is. The second creature was like a calf or an ox, which represents the service in his relationship to mankind, as we saw when he was washing the feet. The third creature had a man's face, which pictures Christ in, in humanity. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle, and it projects the strength and the, the majesty of God by that fourth creature. These four depict Jesus and reveal the nature of his son. I'll end with this question. If the nature of Christ was pictured by the lion, by this calf or this oxen, by this face of humanity, trying to get us to understand what John was seeing, it was the very nature of Christ himself, these living creatures. 
what is our nature? You know, according to the scripture, what is our nature? According to James, we are partakers of what? His divine nature. Who should these living creatures be describing? Us. If Christ lives in me, his nature lives in me, this is the description of his nature, then I too, when the world looks at us with no arrogance, with no pride, they should see that courage and the strength of a lion. They should see the service of this calf or this oxen that was being described here. They should see it in the face of humanity. And when they look at it, looking at us, they ought to see the majesty of God. How many of us think that's describing us? How did we get reduced to so much less? How have we ended up seeing ourselves so much less than how God sees us? Because we don't know the truth. And even when it gets spoken to us, we dismiss it or we degrade it to some level so that it feels like it's not quite as uh, challenging for us to try to be that. And I want to tell you, you cannot be that lion. You cannot be that calf. You cannot be that face. And you cannot be that ego. What's the good news? Someday. Yeah, never considered what John was seeing was right now, the throne room as it is right now, and a picture of us right now. And the great news for us is that that lion, that eagle, that face, that calf lives in me to produce that which I could not produce in the first place. Christ in me, the hope of glory. What is he looking for? He says it over and over. I mean, what's he looking for? He holds these treasures in earthen vessels. He's looking for an old clay pot who's willing to make himself available and be filled with his presence so that the excellency of that clay pot will not be the pot itself, but what it gets to hold. We hold this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency would be of him and not of us. It's not a hard concept. That throne room, wouldn't it be strange if what John was seeing, if we could see it, you know, we get to see, I, I'm probably talking to things I don't really understand, but my guess is we get to see things in somewhat of three dimensions. I don't know if we can see beyond that or not. What if there was a fourth one or a fifth dimension that God could see and that throne room was sitting right here? What if it wasn't off somewhere? What if that throne room was right in us? Everything described and we have separated ourselves diminished ourselves, thought so little of ourselves as believers in, in some call to humility, some call to temperance to never say more about ourselves than to be true. And we bought into it. Even starting, you know, we've talked about this a lot, you know, around here. We should never call ourselves sinners saved by grace. Is there anything in this description of 24 elders seated around this throne wearing golden crowns? If that happens to really be us, the righteousness of those who have come in, into his presence, serving him as they did in the Old Testament, 24 at a time. Can you even imagine one of those elders saying, well, I'm just sitting here I'm in my little chair. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I don't think so. We are not sinners saved by grace, even though that is a historical truth. He died so that we could be called saints. And it should not embarrass us to be called saints. That's what he calls us. He paid a price so that he could call us that. It's like, oh no, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm sorry. He died so that you never have to hear those words spoken about you again. It's a radical change. Again, I, I can't tell you how strange it's been to approach Revelation saying, God, what, is, what are you trying to tell us about us right now? And have so many things shifting in my head at one time. I start studying, I feel like my head's about to explode. 
Okay, God, slow me down, slow me down, slow me down. To process what is he trying to tell us about his relationship with us right now? Because it blows my mind that we could actually be in that throne room right now, seated in his presence, performing no work, simply receiving the righteousness that gave us the privilege of sitting there in the first place because it was the righteousness of his son. And you cannot come there unless you're willing to die to yourself. Because what part of yourself would you ever bring into that throne room? Can't even imagine it. I'm going to offer back to him those things only which he gave me. It's the only thing that can meet the standard. Lord, we thank you for this teaching and just the places I know for me that it's taking my mind and my heart. It's challenging, Lord. You know that you're introducing things to me week by week that I've never even considered before, connecting me to a throne room that I know so little about. But it makes so much sense, Lord, for you to bring the clarity that if, if you are our sovereign, this is where our king sits. And this is what's happening in his presence. I need to know that. I need to understand this better than I've ever understood it before because it's not just about what happens in our, in our future. We need to know that so that we can be watching. But you, you have so much for us right now in this truth. So Lord, I thank you for the introduction to things so far beyond what I've ever considered. And Lord, for the truth that you reveal, because we know, Lord, if it's going to make any difference, it has to come by revelation, not simply by study. So Lord, slow us all down enough to let the revelations be brought to our hearts and brought to our minds and received in our spirits. Thank you for this group that gathers on Wednesday night and for the eagerness to study and to look at your word. We thank you for it. Just praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.